Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are choosing to do things a bit differently. We are choosing to prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships as we go about creating a massive impact and becoming financially successful with our businesses. And if this is your very first episode, I want to say welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. And if you return them, welcome back, hugs, high fives, all the usual good stuff. And I appreciate you so much for being here every single week. But whether you are a new friend or an old friend today, we get to hang out with Dr. Deborah Gilboa. And in this episode, you're going to learn so much, but I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, why unlike what society teaches us, stress is actually good. Number two, why your brain is actually like the seat belt locking mechanism in your car and how understanding that can help you to become more resilient. And number three, why the common societal belief that resilience can grow only by surviving hardship is a absolute myth. And in fact, there are lots of ways to grow resilience without suffering. So we dive into a ton of actionable ways to grow your resilience in today's episode. So you may be wondering who is Dr. Deborah Gilboa? Well, here is her bio. We have been told to avoid stress so much that experiencing stress feels like its own failure. Resilience expert Deborah Gilboa, AKA Dr. G, works with organizations and businesses to identify the mindset and strategies to navigate change without burnout. Renowned for her contagious humor, Dr. G inspires audiences with her illuminating stories and provides no-nonsense prescriptions for success. Author of the new book, From Stressed to Resilience, Dr. G is a leading media personality seen regularly on Today, Good Morning America, and is the resilience expert for The Doctors. She is also featured frequently in The Washington Post, The New York Times, Forbes, and countless other digital and print outlets. Dr. G is a board-certified attending family physician and is fluent in American Sign Language. In addition to being a graduate of University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, where she is also a clinical associate professor and Carnegie Mellon University, she is an alumna of Chicago's Second City Improv Theater. So today is a blast of an episode. Dr. G brought the heat and as, as the bio says, you'll see from the very beginning, she's got a very light, incredible personality, uh, incredible storyteller, and we kick things off very strong. So I'm super excited to introduce you to my brand new friend, Dr. Deborah Gilboa. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Dr. G, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. This is going to be an absolute blast. Thank you, Brandon. I'm really pleased. Yeah, so I always love starting with a story that will kind of lead us to where we want to go in this interview. But I completed your book yesterday and you have so many great stories. So I was thinking which one would kind of set the stage and tell us a little bit about you and then we can dive into some content. But uh, I'll set the stage for everyone and you can kind of take us where we leave off. So you're you, the context is you're at a work conference, you're in Atlantic City, and you get a push notification from your phone from United Airlines saying that your flight from FCO to JFK has been delayed. Uh, so would you mind kind of filling in the gaps there and what happened over the next few hours after you got that notification? <laughs> 
Absolutely. So I was maybe 30 minutes from taking the stage to give a keynote at this conference when uh, Al Italia let me know that the flight I had booked from Rome to JFK was going to delay for 22 hours. Now you'd think, what am I doing in Atlantic City going from Rome to JFK? It wasn't me. It was my 15-year-old son who was coming home from studying uh, in this free abroad program he had found for the whole year. And so this is March. He's been there for six months. We're really excited to see him. I'm supposed to meet him at JFK and drive him home because his grandfather's getting remarried. So we're having a big celebration. Except that if he was going to land from Tel Aviv to Rome and have 22 hours to sit I didn't know what he was going to do. I called Alitalia and I, they said, oh, it's it's not to worry, please. We're going to give him a, a voucher for a hotel. And I said, are you also going to give him a fake ID? Because he's 15. He can't check in alone to a hotel. This person did not catch my sarcasm and said, uh, I will check, but I don't think we can do that. <laughs> so I thought, okay. I don't know how to solve this problem by myself. So I had to do a couple of things, actually. I had to figure out how he was already in the air. It was a weather delay that had changed things for the airline. So I had to figure out both how I was going to create a path for him in a country neither of us have ever been to and get him the information because of course he was gonna land during my keynote. In order to do this, I thought, I remembered something that I say to my medical students all the time, which is you don't know what you don't know. And in this case, I thought, I, I don't know who I know who has contacts in Rome, but that doesn't mean that I don't know someone who has contacts in Rome. So I put out a parental plea on social media, uh, giving not too much information, but bare bones, hey, um, for my kids' safety, if anybody knows somebody in Rome who would be willing to help me out with a parenting emergency, could you please reach out to me? And then I figured out what my kid could do for like that first hour when he got to Rome, get his bag and where he could hang. And then I had to find someone at the conference and I didn't know anybody really well because as you know, if you go in and you speak places, often you're speaking to audiences who aren't people you've already met. I had to find someone who was willing to babysit my phone and reassuring enough so that when my kid landed and he got on Wi-Fi and he reached out to me, they could be like, hey, so this very unexpected thing has happened and this disruption, it's gonna be fine. Here's what you need to do. And it is not my personality to ask strangers for help. And in this moment, I had to do that twice. And, and one of them was in a really public way. And one of them was in a work setting. And I don't know if your listeners will be able to relate, but as much as I try to be a pretty authentic person, as much as I can in a work setting, I try not to be a hundred percent transparent. You know, I don't want anybody to think that whatever I've got going on in the background is their problem or going to interfere with my ability to bring my best self to what's going on for them and the service that I'm there to provide for them and the connection that I want to make for them. I never want my audience to think that time that we're spending together is about me because it isn't. That's not why you go to a conference or why you go to a lecture. So this was, this was a real get out of your comfort zone kind of moment for me. It ended up working out great. So great, in fact, that my son asked if he could possibly stop in Rome for 24 hours on his way back to. 
That's incredible. I love that story for so many reasons. One, it just shows that you're a mom and that despite the fact that you're on stage all the time, like you, you're a parent first and foremost, so you got to take care of your kids and you have four sons for my research, which is, you know, a handful, which is incredible. And obviously it, it alludes to the work that you do. It's like from your book, from stress to resilient, the guide to handle more and feel it less. It's like, these are the situations that life gives us and we just have to figure things out. I've been to 23 countries with my wife and those sometimes those <laughs> those travel situations get crazy. Like I actually we we got interrogated once uh in in Hong Kong because we were going to Tel Aviv and they saw that we had stamps in our passport from other places and we got crossing you know it's just like crazy stuff. So I totally understand that and I can only imagine you being an ocean away from your son is just like oh my god. So uh I love that. There are a few things I want to pick apart. We'll go into some of the stress to resilient content but I want to I want to highlight one small thing that I noticed as you were telling that story is you gave an Italian accent and I know I know in my research that you uh, are an alumna of Chicago's Second City Improv Theater um, which is incredible I just recently did a improv class with my wife and I see the value of that and so the what you do now from my understanding it wasn't always what you were planning on doing you know you're you're a, you're a physician now resilience expert but that wasn't where you started. So I'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit about your theater background and how that led to what you're doing today. Yes, and that was a terrible accent, right? But that's okay. <laughs> because the idea was just to give this idea that this is some person who's really different than me, who's fluent in a language that I'm not fluent in, as well as being fluent in a language I am fluent in. And yet my sarcasm got lost somewhere. My, my path, like so many people's, isn't a straight line. One of the craziest things about the educational path that we put people on in this country is, in my opinion, the assumption that a 16 or 17 year old could possibly know what they mean to do 30 years later. I heard this amazing talk from Jaime Alvarez. He was at the time, he may still be, the educational director for Google. And he said, what I do now is the most incredible job I could have ever had in my life and it didn't exist. The internet didn't exist when I was a teenager. So many of the things that we will each do in our careers, we can't even imagine yet. And one of the reasons that I lean so heavily in my book and in my work on staying open to possibilities is because if you get the idea that there's only one possible picture of success, it makes resilience so much harder and stress so much more damaging. If you think I set my foot on this path and so things are only good if I go where I pictured at the beginning of this path, but many of us know in our work, in our relationships, in where we live, in the activities that we enjoy, in the communities that we join, that it's an evolving process. I did, as a six-year-old, love to tell people that I was gonna be a doctor and not just a doctor. I would say I was going to be a pediatric neurosurgeon because I noticed that people were really impressed by that. Obviously, as a six-year-old, I knew exactly what that meant. I mean, come on, right? But then I got to high school. I was 13. I was a freshman in biology, and we had to dissect a fetal pig, and I puked. So I thought, I obviously can't be a doctor. I'm too squeamish. But I was working in you know, the, the group that I found myself in in my high school that resonated the most with me was the theater crowd. So I was doing shows, I was doing backstage and on stage for shows. And I thought, boy, this is so fun. And then it turns out you can go to school for that. 
And I thought, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I went full steam ahead as I do with pretty much everything for good and ill. And I went to a conservatory program for theater and I majored, I got my bachelor of fine arts, mind you, not just a bachelor of arts, really, really specific. I took two classes outside my major the entire time I was at this university. And I graduated in this major I started out in at the school I started out at, which at that time was pretty unusual, in four years. And then I started to work in theater and in television. And I worked everywhere from LA to Wichita, Kansas to Chicago. When I was in Chicago, I got my union card, my actor's equity card on, <laughs> brace yourself, Gilligan's Island, the musical. Mm, love it. <laughs> it was a fan favorite. And then after those people had seen it, we closed. And it was a great opportunity for me, though, because now I was in the union and I was thinking, oh, this is fantastic. I'll apply to other union houses. And I did. I got hired at Second City. It was an incredible experience. I worked there for several years in the mid 90s. But I started to realize that I had kind of peaked. I could move to other jobs that would also be excellent in theater, but they were kind of lateral moves. And it is a very tough on your lifestyle kind of world. So after a couple of years, I thought, boy, if I was going to do something really different, what would it be? And I thought, well, I'd really like to go to medical school. I'd volunteered as an emergency medical technician. I loved emergency medicine, you know, blood and gore. It turns out that I'm not that squeamish after all. <laughs> and I called up Northwestern's medical school because this is before the interwebs. So I yellow pages called the administration office at Northwestern's med school. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about applying to medical school. What's required? And this woman said, well, you need a bachelor's. And I said, in what? Imagining she would say biology or at least science. And she said, college. <laughs> I was like, I totally have one of those. I did that. I did have to take a year's worth of science classes while I was applying to medical school. But I went to Kelly Leonard, who was at the time, uh, one of the producers at Second City. He's since gone on to do even more amazing things. And I said to him, Kelly, I think this is my last season. And he said, I can't believe you're giving it up for the man. And he basically gave me, you know, you'll never work. You'll never be happy. The same arguments my parents gave me against going into theater in the first place. And then he said, you'll be back. And I said, I, I can't see how I'll be back, but okay. Short story. He was totally correct. Years later, I was on the ABC morning show in Chicago and he happened to see me and he texted me and said, get yourself over to my office. I was not living in Chicago. I was just visiting. And I went over and we ended up producing and creating a show for Second City called What's Happy Got to Do With It? That was mm -hmm. a braid of my keynote content, Second City style scenes and musical numbers and audience improvisation and participation. And it was really awesome, really awesome. And I use that as an example in a long-winded way to answer your question because there's no waste in your process if you keep learning. There's no wrong turns on your path if you don't end up in prison. There's so much to gain if you look at everything you do as lifting you towards whatever it is you're going to decide later that you want to do.
And that's really one of the advantages that I have found is that the people that I've met, the connections that I've made and the skills that I've learned and the insights that I've gained in these twists and turns, you know, I spent years, I worked my way through medical school as an American Sign Language interpreter. That doesn't have any obvious add to the work that I do now, except that it totally does. And so if you can stop living as I think a lot of people do in regret, you know, if you have remorse about something you did, you wish you'd done it differently. I think that's a valuable learning technique. But regret to me symbols something that's more where people stay and Regret is not that valuable, I think. Thank you for sharing that story. It's so powerful. And I think it just alludes to the fact that society tries to place us in boxes when in reality, there is no one box that anyone can actually fit in, except for the people that believe that you have to fit inside of a box, right? Like, it's just, I love how you, you the six-year-old genius in you knew that you wanted to be a doctor. Um, and like, that was just totally put on hold for for years, but then it, it reweaved into your life and you were creative enough to look at the variables that you had and the skill sets that you had. And now you've like, you use the word braid, like you braided together a career that fits the doctor. It fits the acting. It fits the on personality or the, the, the TV personality stuff. So I love that. And I think it's a huge encouragement to anyone that you can look if, if you do the work that you've clearly done to examine your skill sets and what you want to create in the world that you can absolutely create a, a, career path and a, a business that supports all those things that you're doing. So I absolutely love that. And we've planted seeds and alluded to a little bit of the resilience work that you do today. And, you know, this is kind of, I, I thought of this when you were talking, telling your first story about your son having to figure out what to do in Rome, but there's a myth that you dispel in your book that I think would be a, a great place to start. And the myth is resilience can only grow by surviving hardship. So would you mind talking a little bit about that and why that's a myth? You've heard the expression, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, once or twice. <laughs> right. I think really what doesn't kill you makes you miserable in that context when people use that. That's what they mean, but they're trying to feel better about the misery. If if that were true, if just going through hard things made you more resilient, then everyone who'd been through a couple of hard things would get stronger. It's true for some people without any sort of support or intentionality. But Brandon, I'm not going to ask you who, but do you know somebody who just continues to have a really hard time? Like Absolutely. rough things happen to them and they struggle and they feel oppressed and it never seems to get any better. Yes. I, I, I yes, absolutely. <laughs> and everybody I know knows people like that. And if it were true that just going through hard things made you stronger, that wouldn't happen after a while, right? People would hit their threshold and break through it and then be like, oh, good, now I'm stronger. I use an analogy a lot that is, because it's really useful to me personally, that is comparing stress and exercise. First of all, they both suck, right? <laughs> I know there are a few people out there who are like, no, I love exercise, God bless you. But most of <laughs> us do not. For most of us, setting out to exercise for the purpose of being healthier is a chore. We may see the value in it. We may eventually do it enough that we get the great endorphins. But in general, it's like the dishes. It's something you like to have done, but not something you're super excited to go do. When we try, you know, if I told you like, hey, I'm going to go run a marathon, you would probably, if we were friends, be like, oh, how did you train for it? And if I said, oh, I didn't, 
you know, I just, I, I often can't find my car in the parking lot. So I have to wander around for a long time working, looking for it. So I'm sure I'll be fine. That's my workout. <laughs> right. That's like saying, well, if you've gone through hard things, right, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You've gone through hard things. So I'm sure that going through hard things won't be hard. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. And the research doesn't bear it out. And I am a scientist and it's really important to me to look for the evidence because sometimes things should make sense. But then when we look for the research, it turns out it isn't the case. I had this the whatever the opposite of an aha moment is, I guess like a er kind of like confused puppy <laughs> moment would be the opposite, right? When I was in medical school in maybe the beginning of my second year of medical school, and this was 1998, and our professors kept saying, stress is the new smoking. Tell your patients to avoid it at all costs. And when you're in medical school, it's like drinking from a fire hose. You're just grabbing everything you can grab and trying to, you know, and like write it down so you can study it later. So I didn't, you're not so much interrogative during that process. You're not, you're not examining the water pouring out of the fire hose. You're just trying to catch it. And so I kept hearing this phrase, stress is the new smoking, stress is the new smoking. And it bugged me every time, but I didn't have time to think about why. And then at the end of class, every class, they would make announcements. And they make announcements like, please make sure that you are signed up for at least three research projects. Uh, you know, you each need to be trying to run one of our interest groups and attending at least four more. Here are the clinical volunteer hours you can do on the weekends to help prep you for third year clinical time. They were just layering on all these things. Plus, I was working to try and, you know, afford groceries. Plus, I ever wanted to go visit my parents or have friendships or exercise as mentioned. And I thought, this is super stressful, right? These announcements at the end of class, some people would intentionally leave before them to not have to listen because it was so stressful. And I thought, if stress is the new smoking and all these things they're piling on us are super stressful, they must be trying to kill us because they don't want us to take their jobs when we graduate. Like, it didn't make any sense. That was my confused puppy dog moment of if stress is just dangerous, because in the medical literature, and it's absolutely true, smoking is just dangerous. There's nothing redeeming about it. If it's only dangerous and there's nothing redeeming about it, why are they trying to kill us like this? And then I got into my clinical years and I started to look at the nurses around me, particularly nurses. Doctors are flying at a million miles an hour. When you're a resident, they're there to judge you and you only see them really as your mentor or your judge. But nurses, they were coming in every day, really caring for people, plus navigating everything that was going on for them in the rest of their lives. And they would talk about it at work in ways that doctors don't. I think that might be changing, but at the time it was definitely true. And I thought, boy, these people, mostly women, navigate an enormous amount of stress. And some of them seem genuinely healthy and happy. So what am I missing here? I put this idea on hold for some of my residency, but then once I was really an attending physician, which means done with all my training, right? And actually into the nuts and bolts of taking care of people. I was in a rural area and it took me a few years, but I finally got comfortable enough with my job, with the medicine of it to feel like, okay, let's, and my, uh, the American Academy of Family Physicians gives us an opportunity every year to sort of zoom the camera back and do performance initiatives to see how am I doing for my patients? 
And I thought, I've been taught to help people recover, but not help people be well. There's this gap between, you know, like when you're ill, recovering back to not ill and actually being well or recovering from being injured to having full function of that arm or whatever and actually being well. And what's in that, what's in that gap? I did what I'd been trained to do. I went to the medical literature and it was always defined as patient resilience, which sounded like a cop-out, but I thought, okay, what if they're right? What is that? And all the research that I could find about resilience focused on post-traumatic stress disorder, mostly in combat veterans or people with severe mental illness. And that's all really useful, but most of it isn't directly applicable to, to many of my patients. I have some patients in that situation, but not most of them. So I thought, okay, we got to do this research. We've got to find out what patient resilience is made of. Is it just something you're born with, like genetics? You know, I know that genetics is one of the protective or risk factors that I have to consider with my patients, but I can't change it. So is resilience like eye color? And it's just we talk about it like that in our society. We say, oh, wow, Brandon, he's really resilient. Oh, but you know, Patty, she's pretty sensitive. Or Michael, well, he doesn't handle change well. We talk about it like it is part of your personality, like it's baked in. And I was really curious to know if that was true. And the good news to short circuit all the research that so that nobody else has to go do it is that it's not a character trait. Resilience turns out to be a series of skills. And just like I mentioned that some people do go through hard things and magically get stronger without any intentionality. Some kids, when they're three or four or five years old, they pick up a book and they pretty much teach themselves to read. But that's actually unusual. That's the vast minority of kids who do that. And it's the minority of people who just get stronger by suffering. It turns out that we get stronger through a little bit of intentionality and the skills that we learn. We used to call these soft skills, but I much prefer the term that Google used in a big uh, study they did about their employees, foundational skills. Mm -hmm. And those foundational skills help us be resilient when stress comes along. So much gold that was just dropped right there. So I always encourage people to go go hit the back skip a few times <laughs> and listen to all that that just came out. I want to ask a question that's kind of a tangent that's really quick. Do you happen to know Dr. Jamie Hope? But she's a ER physician out of um, Detroit. I do. I went to a lecture that she gave along with a trauma surgeon from Detroit. Okay. Cause I was going to say, if you don't know her, she's a dear friend of mine. She's been on the show and like, she talks about all the time about how like her whole purpose is to put herself out of a job. Like how do you not end up in the ER? <laughs> and so she's got like, you know, the ER where she's saving people's lives, but then she also is on stage and speaking like you, where she's preventing people from ending up in the ER. <laughs> I so really think it was her that I heard at this. One of the things that I really took away from that lecture is that the two people speaking, the trauma surgeon and the ER doc both said, as far as I can tell, the most dangerous thing you can do in my city is stand there minding your own business. Because that's what patients always say when they come in. I was just standing there minding my own business. And the trauma surgeon said, next time run. <laughs> yeah, I, I I love that. So I, if it's interesting for you, I think you guys would be great friends if you haven't already connected. So I just wanted to make sure I said that. But I, I love that. And you, you, set it, you set us up perfectly to go into, well, okay, how do we actually practice some of these resilience things? And how do we be intentional about 
these things that are happening to us and transform our experiences so that they're serving us and that we are becoming stronger. There's just one small little point I'd, I'd love to get in before we, we jump into some of the exercises. And you've alluded to a lot of the research that you've done that backs your content and the stuff that you're sharing on stages. But I think it always helps to get a kind of a picture of what's going on inside of our brains as we face some of these things. So you have this kind of, you have this great analogy that you use in the book about the, the brain being kind of like the lock mechanism in our car whenever we hit the brakes. So would you mind like sharing that analogy and a little bit about like why our brains are wired the way that they're wired when it comes to resilience? Absolutely. So when I was looking at these women in the hospital who were navigating all these different things and yet seemed happy and healthy and that seemed different than what I'd learned in school, I started to realize that the reason that we can't just say, well, stress is uniformly bad, like smoking, and people might be really startled to hear me say this because we all have been told that stress is a toxin, right? But here's the problem. Our brains recognize all change as stressful, all change even the good stuff. So you pitch a new client and you get the email back that says, that proposal looks great. We've decided to pay you twice as much and we're in. When can we start? Even that, which I think most of your listeners would say, yeah, sounds like a positive change. That sounds like great news. Even great news, our brains see as potentially dangerous. And we drop the same stress hormones to good news or potential good news as we do to bad news or potential bad news. And this is where I started to think, well, if all change is stressful, it, stress can't be entirely negative because we need change. So avoiding stress would mean avoiding all change. That would mean never applying for a job. That would be mean never trying to improve your circumstance in any way, never getting into a new relationship, never having a child, right? That can't be it. That just yeah, doesn't help sitting, us. Sitting in a chair wrapped in bubble wrap. <laughs> right, exactly. So if all change or potential change is stressful, then avoiding stress can't be the answer. So what is the answer? And what you're talking about is, and I just want to help your, your listeners really put themselves in this spot. Most of us have been in the front seat of a car when the driver, whether you're the driver or the passenger, hits the brakes and your seatbelt locks. It doesn't actually matter if the driver is reaching in the back seat for a soda or trying to avoid a four car accident. If you're going fast enough and you hit the brakes, the seatbelt just locks. It's just a safety mechanism. There's no reasoning involved. There's no risk analysis. Just, it's just a tripwire. Our brains have the same kind of tripwire when we hear about a possible change, any kind of change. So let's see if this rings true for you, Brandon. Um, can you, is there an example you'd be willing to give everybody of good news you got recently? Like any time in the last year? Good news. Um, I, I, so it's just choosing which one, I guess. Um, yeah. Something that represented a change that you're pretty happy about. Yeah, I'll go with maybe not. Uh, it was it was something that I chose to do, but I actually yeah. did decide to sign up to do a marathon, which was which was crazy change. So I had a friend that encouraged me to do that. So I've been training for it since you mentioned it. So that that's a big change. <laughs> that's a great idea. Okay, so let's look at that one. Let's say that you um, you got online and you registered for that marathon, right? That was your commitment. And yep. then you opened your email sometime in the next probably couple of hours. And there was the receipt for your registration, right? Yep. There's the email. Even while you might have had a rush of excited, proud, happy that you took that step, 
your brain still said, oh, damn. Oh, shit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what could I lose? Like, could I get injured so that I couldn't be physically active in the future? Like, is could this be too much for my body? Could I be damaged by this in some way? Am I going to lose, you know, normally now on the weekend, my wife and I spend our exercise time together, but she isn't running the marathon. So am I going to lose that time with her, which is really special to us? Am I going to lose, you know, I have, I have that one friend who we've always hated on long distance running together. And now I have to go tell them that I'm running a marathon. And are, is that going to, in some fundamental way, kind of hurt our relationship? Also, your brain said, are you sure you can do this? Do you really have the commitment that it takes? Are, is this going to get super boring? Was that the right marathon to sign up for? Was it the right timing in your yearly schedule? Is it in the right place geographically? Is it going to be too many hills or weird elevation or whatever? And then, because loss and distrust weren't enough, your brain says, okay, fine. Maybe you're doing this, but... It's going to be really uncomfortable. You're going to have to change the way you eat. You're going to have to deal with um, getting new gear and maybe it won't fit right or maybe it'll be expensive. You're going to have to um, just carve out big chunks of time where you have to, you're going to have to make a longer, different playlist. You love your running playlist right now. Smaller things, but uncomfortable things. Those three reactions, loss, distrust, and discomfort, those are the ways our brain tries to keep us safe. Even while you might have been feeling proud or excited or um, thrilled, those are the ways your brain checks to make sure that this isn't going to be the change that kills you. Here's the reason that our brain sees all change as, or potential change as stressful. Our brains have a million functions, but one job, that job is to keep us alive. Good news, we are currently alive. Bad news, all change is suspect. Mm -hmm. Did you experience any of those things when you got that email? I, I mean, you were kind of like a little bit of a, you, you were basically the little parrot on my shoulder there. So I, I definitely ran through almost everything that you just brought up there, <laughs> including the fact that I look at my training plan and this weekend, it's like a 15 mile run. It's like, shit, I, <laughs> there goes, there goes several hours of my, of my weekend yeah. and it just gets worse from here, you know? So, but uh, <laughs> some, of, some of it was intentional. It's like, I, I, I chose that for a reason. I, I, I knew what I was signing up for. <laughs> well, and you've just pointed out something really important. We have lore in our society about, oh, trust your instincts, go with your gut. If it doesn't seem right to you, then don't do it. And that is not in keeping with the brain science because your brain science is, wait, but could you die? So your first reaction, if you're paying attention to just about every change is negative. And so if you take that to mean, obviously my gut says I shouldn't do it, you'll stay stuck in place a lot longer. And for your listeners in particular, who are constantly thinking about what's next to level up in my work, level up always means change. It always means risk. So if you listen to that knee-jerk reaction, and I use knee-jerk intentionally, Brendan, I don't know if you've ever taken a kid to the doctor for a well-child check, or if you remember going, but- oh, yeah. If a kid comes to see me for a well child check, and as a family doctor, I do a lot of well child checks, I sit them up on my table or I have them climb up on my table and we talk and we joke around and the parent and I talk and we I use my stethoscope and I listen and then I have them listen to their heart and we talk about how hearts work and whatever. At some point, I take out my reflex hammer and I tap their knee. And what happens? They kick. 
well, great that's just because <laughs> that's what it, that's what a knee-jerk reaction refers to we all have a deep tendon reflex right below the patella and a lot of your listeners are right now reaching down and touching it on their knee that <laughs> soft spot between the kneecap and the and the bones below and if i touch it in the right spot they'll kick if i stand right in front of that child and tap their knee what happens to me you get kicked <laughs> i get kicked should the parent chastise that child and be like, don't kick the doctor, it's disrespectful? No, as a matter of fact, that parent in their inside voice is thinking, wow, she's kind of an idiot. Why did she stand right in front of that kid and then tap their knee? They can't help it. And that knee-jerk reaction that happens in our brain, I wanna point out to you, you can't help it. You can't turn off that safety mechanism because your brain is too wired to protect you. What you can do, is get out of the way, let it kick, let the, let the foot go back into place and then move forward. And this is what I wanted to help people see. First of all, stress isn't all bad. We need to deal with stress to get change. And often it's change, like you pointed out, that we choose. Now, listen, some changes go along that we would never choose. You find out that your parent got a cancer diagnosis. That's gonna add a lot of stress and change to your life and you would have never chosen it. But you can't avoid it right? I can't tell my patients, well, that sounds stressful. You're supposed to avoid stress. So tell your parent they're on their own, let you know in a couple of years how it went, right? So there's stress that is unavoidable and there's stress that is useful and some stress is both. If you are encountering a stress that is useless and avoidable, run, <laughs> don't do it. Mm -hmm. But most stress falls into useful, unavoidable, or both. So we have to have the skills we need to navigate those changes. And it turns out that the definition of resilience is the ability to navigate change with intention and purpose. 100%. And so if, I mean, we have we have some time left to dive into some of these things, but I'm just going to encourage everyone right now, you can go get From Stress to Resilient, the guide to handle more and feel it less. You can go pick that up on Amazon or your your site. Is there anywhere else where they can, they can find? The, those the are the fastest, easiest places for sure. Cool. So go grab those and we'll walk through some exercises so that everybody gets a little bit of a sample of some of these ways that we can actually transform these experiences. But um, not to summarize your own book, but like there's eight resilient skills that you're helping everyone to build, build connections, set boundaries, open to change, manage discomfort, set goals, identify options, take action and persevere. I love the way the book is organized, especially because you're kind of like a, a coach in this process is like, you're really pushing people to do the exercises that are associated to each one of these things and helping people to, to build these. So I, I picked a few of these exercises to kind of give people a sample. And as you were talking, I just not to use the running analogy so much, but but <laughs> but we were just talking about running a marathon. One of your exercises is called walk, don't run. And I think this is also related to some of the things that we talk about in the, that we were just talking about our, our brains. It's like our brains have this kind of all or nothing mode that 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 dumps all these stress chemicals. And there's a way that we can like identify the the levels of discomfort that we're having in these particular situations. And it almost, it, it makes it more manageable because we realize that like when you were running through the whole marathon exercise, it's like the brain immediately goes like, oh, am I gonna die from all these kind of crazy things, right? But like, there's a way of being like, okay, let me just take all these crazy thoughts and put them down on paper 
and figure out a way to actually manage it in a, in a healthy way. So we'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit about manage discomfort. And if you can, maybe talk about some of the, the exercises in there. Absolutely. When I was doing all this research with uh, some amazing people at Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University about resilience, what we were trying to figure out is, okay, since we have found that this is something that you can build, right? However resilient you naturally are, and people are born with a certain amount, different amounts, how do you grow it? How do you move your own ball down the field to be able to navigate change more easily, to be able to handle stress without all of the negative impacts it can have on your physical and mental health. And what we found is that when we talk about resilience, we're really talking about eight skills, the eight skills that you mentioned. Now, there are some other traits that also impact our resilience, but these eight skills, we can grow at any point. And one of the things that I did with this book, because it's what I do in my practice as a family doctor, I recognize the expertise of the person who's working on this. I'm an expert in this content, but you're an expert in you. So you know, given the change that's most on your mind right now and your own life experiences and your own skills, what you're already good at and what would be really useful to you. But I will tell you of those eight skills, Brandon, today in this world, if I could wave a magic wand and strengthen one for everyone, it would be the one you chose. It would be managing oh, wow. discomfort for sure. Because in this cycle that I only really told you about the, the, the bad half, right? I said, we, we hear about a change and it could be a new COVID variant or it could be winning the lottery or it could be your phone updating its operating system. It doesn't matter how big or small or good or bad or whatever. And our brain goes, wait a minute, what could I lose? Do I really trust this? What's uncomfortable? As soon as we remember that we have choices, we don't even have to know what they are. We just remember, wait, I probably have some choices that turns on the thinking part of our brain which doesn't turn off the freaking out part the amygdala but it quiets the amygdala a little bit and we get to choice we list those choices we pick one or more and engage with them and that allows us to reunify that's the good part right not reunify necessarily with your running schedule or with the organization that you decided to do your marathon with or even your running partner but to reunify with the kind of person that you want to be the intention and purpose that you want to navigate this change so in that where people get stuck most often isn't actually the loss the huge fear it isn't even actually the distrust although the media you know partisanship might lead you to think otherwise where most people get stuck is in discomfort. We have such a hard time being uncomfortable that we think this change must be bad because it's uncomfortable. And we either freeze or we run away or we fight, right? It's the cortisol hormone that you've probably heard about as the fight or flight hormone. Well, it's not only fight or flight. Our brains have four possible reactions, fight or flight or freeze or face. So to face it, we have to be able to manage our discomfort. The first thing we have to be able to do is figure out, is this discomfort that I'm feeling? And discomfort can be awful. It isn't just like a hangnail, right? Discomfort can be incredibly hard to deal with, but our brain's trying to tell us that it's dangerous. Just like you said, could I really die? <laughs> have you seen there's a whole meme uh, line that is, but did you die, right? <laughs> and when we look at that discomfort that our brain is trying to get us to either fight or flee or freeze, and we wanna face it, we need a toolbox of ways to manage our discomfort 
that aren't damaging to us or our work or our relationships. They can be neutral. It can be that you pull out your phone and play 10 minutes of a useless game on your phone. And I mean useless, like it doesn't add to the world or to you that much, but it helps you manage your discomfort. And then you can move through that change. It could be wonderful, like exercise or creating art or um, doing something kind for a stranger. It doesn't matter if it's positive or neutral. It only matters that it's not negative or damaging. So in this particular exercise, I said, hey, the purpose is we want to identify levels of discomfort and learn how to sort out what's actually dangerous and what isn't. And so I ask people to really think in this walk, don't run exercise about their own warning signs. Because when you get a stomach ache from something, your brain goes, see, dangerous. Or you get a, a butterflies feeling or your throat feels like it closes up and you can't talk right then. Your brain goes, see, dangerous, you can't even breathe. So we have to figure out what are some of the things that I physically feel in the parts of my body. And I, I actually lay it out. I say in your stomach, in your chest, in your head, in your hands and arms, in your feet and legs. And then I say, okay, that's the short-term adrenaline and cortisol that's happening in your body, right? That's just, it's just chemical, physiologic. But your brain dumps those chemicals, whether your phone is updating its operating system, you get a little bit like, oh my gosh, what, but I needed my phone right now. Or your boss walks by and says, hey, uh, come by my office at the end of the day, we need to talk. Ah! Or there's actually a shark in the water behind you, right? You're swimming in the ocean and there's an actual shark. Your body will dump the same chemicals, maybe different amounts, but the same chemicals. So then you say, okay, when you're having a stressful whole day or few days, so this isn't just that short-term dump of heart rate speeding up and oh my gosh, panic. What do you notice with a longer stress about your focus, your memory, your mood, your thoughts, your overall health, right? Your sleep, your hunger, how do those things change? And then I give you two paragraphs, half a page on how to figure out if your brain is right what's uncomfortable and what's dangerous. And then I ask you to think about some stressful events or situations you can remember in the last couple of years. And then using what you've learned, put them in the uncomfortable category or the actual dangerous category. And then I make you dive in even more to the discomfort part and make you rate those different situations on a scale of one to 10 and figure out that Venn diagram I mentioned, what's useful, what's you know necessary, because it's not avoidable, like a terrible diagnosis in someone you love, what's useful and necessary, and what's not useful or necessary. And then you can walk away from it. But I don't want you to run away from every stressor or every time you feel even terribly uncomfortable, because sometimes you can't, and sometimes it's really valuable. There's so much in there that I, I know we don't even we don't have time in our data unpack, but there's so much gold there. The first thing I kind of already said beforehand, but I just want to reiterate, I think it's so powerful that oftentimes in our brain, we run into these danger loops because of the naturally the way our, our brain is wired, but an exercise Keep like this. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Like, but our exercise like this, it, it it takes you out of that danger loop and you can examine it as something outside of you because it's on a piece of paper right and then and then once it's outside of you you can work on it instead of it just being this kind of crazy thing so i love that you have people 
write down these things and then rate the disc the discomfort level and then you can realize that this is just discomfort it's not going to kill you i think that gives you a lot more power in that particular situation and the other thing is that you talked about when you were talking about the physiological response that your your body feels when you're stressed this is a a pattern i've begun to identify throughout all the incredible people i've had an opportunity of interviewing but it's this concept of like naming and labeling something like because when you name the thing, you have power for, power over the thing, right? But if it's this kind of like ambiguous question mark, you and but like the moment that you realize like, oh, this is this thing that's happening and it's called this, or like then you immediately have a, the, the power over controlling or creating a better reaction over that thing. So I love, love that. And the last thing I'll say is my buddy gave me this uh, mug <laughs> or water bottle. I've been using forever. It's, it's, it says seek discomfort on it. <laughs> uh, so I, I love that. I think that it's super powerful for everyone to have these tools and exercise with the understanding that by pursuing these and having the tools that you're talking about, we can systematically or find a way to improve and create exponential opportunities as a result of digesting our experiences. It's absolutely true. I think an example that might ring for people who are with us today on this conversation is the finances of your business. Even if you are somebody who has already really taken the reins and knows exactly where your money is and what's coming in and what's going out and how you're going to use it, there was a time where you hadn't done that yet. So you can remember how stressful that is. And when it's just this amorphous, like the taxes or the the budget, and you haven't really sat down and gotten into the weeds about it, it has a lot of power to ruin your sleep, to make, to rob you of the joy of new opportunities in your business, because you don't know if it's enough and you don't know if it's got you on the right path. And it is a big barrier to get yourself to sit down and write down everything and examine it for flaws and admit what you don't know and try and get the help you need to understand it better. But if you're willing to do that, then your business can actually create the change in your life that you want it to create. Yeah, love that. So, I mean, for you listening right now, it's like we've we covered one exercise there's like tw what is it like 27 exercises 30, in here <laughs> 30 30 lots of exercises to to take these problems and strengthen your ability to uh, you know move past resilience into into strength for for you so i would highly recommend that everybody go check that out um i know we only have a few minutes left so maybe we can do one more quicker one and then we can start wrapping <laughs> things up um but uh, you know, something, the people that are listening to this right now, myself included, one of the things that we focus on all the time is setting goals, right? Like you want, you want to set goals. And I love in the book, you talk about there, there is a, there's this, by saying setting goal, it's kind of like this ominous thing. It's like asking a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, you don't really know, there's no guidance beyond that, but you have an exercise where it's like, what problem do you want to solve? And like, by asking a question like that, you can focus on, instead of it being this crazy ominous goal, you can, you can take one small component and actually apply that. So we'd love for you to maybe share some of your insights on that question. Maybe we don't have to go through the exercise, but just the idea of focusing on that question instead of the the, the big hairy audacious goals. <laughs> I would bet that a large percentage of your audience owns a to-do list, right? You've jotted down yeah. in your phone or on a napkin or on your bathroom mirror with a dry erase marker, a list of stuff you want to get done that day or that week or whatever. So you already have some practice at doing this. It's really a way of taking your list making ability 
and applying it to something you really, really want. The purpose of this exercise is to take one life goal, which sounds huge, right? I don't know, be a seven figure entrepreneur and find the building blocks that you need to get there. Building blocks are things that you can actually accomplish. Goals are, somebody has said goals are dreams with deadlines, but it's really hard to say, oh, today I'm going to accomplish my dream. <laughs> that's not really something. Oh, that's Tuesday. Yeah, I have that on the docs for Tuesday. Right. So I want you to first pick a priority that you have. Often when I ask people what's a life goal, they're like, I, I don't know, to be happy, I guess, or to be able to afford all the things for all the people, for myself and the people I love and the people that you know work for me, whatever. But I say, if you go and you look at your priorities, is your priority... Um, your own well-being is, you know, are, of your top three or five priorities is the one you want to focus on your own well-being or um, financial stability or uh, family or whatever. And then once you figure out what that priority is, you get to your goal by saying, what what do you want from that priority? What do you want for your family? Or what do you want for your for to know that you're financially secure? So that's the big goal. You figured out that big goal. Because even sometimes just asking what's your goal feels too much. And then I say, okay. And in the book, I give you an example of myself, what a, a big goal I had. And then I said, okay, make a list of what I need to do differently or keep working on, because you may already be working towards this goal to get there. And I ask you to do the same. And I ask you to write down four things. And then I say, now find a problem. One of these, at least one, you're not doing. Figure out what's the problem? You don't have to have the solution. Just figure out what's the problem. Let's say that the thing that you want to do is um, spend more time with your family. And you say, okay, so to do that, I need to plan things with them. I need to um, you know, do things that we all enjoy. I need to have the money to afford that thing. Like maybe we want to go on vacation together, whatever it is. Okay. So what are the problems you have to solve to be able to do each of those things? And then pick one, just one. Because what I want you to do in this whole book is prove to yourself what you can accomplish and start to build the pathway in your brain that gets you there. So you don't have to try and fix everything at once. Please don't. Every January 2nd, my patients come into my office every year. I've been in practice for 19 years. Every January 2nd, they're like, Dr. G, this is my year. I'm going to exercise every day and I'm going to stop drinking wine and I'm going to take a vitamin and I'm going to quit smoking. And I'm like, whoa, 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 pick one, <laughs> pick one change, do that till it's a habit, which is three months, then do the next thing and pick something that you really want to do. And that you're pretty sure you could see how you would do, because I want you to build your confidence and your competence at navigating change. So in this exercise, I say, okay, so you pick one thing. What are some possible solutions? Which would you like to solve first? Of all these things, which seems best or most fun or least awful? And then specifically, what do you do first? You've taken an enormous goal, like I want to have amazing connected relationships with my family. And by the end of this whole path, you are going to have one 15-minute call with your sister every week. Yeah. 
Love that. And and just so I read this and I immediately saw a parallel in the process that I use, but just to just how I've implemented this in my own life is every week when I plan for my week, I kind of set out the main uh, obviously the main, like you said, to-do list, I have a to-do list, right. But like the way that I break it down is I realized over time, the, the way that you state something on your to-do list determines your ability to check it off. Right. Yes. <laughs> like, Whoa, profound, you know, but like, it took me a while to figure that out. It's like, wait, the way that this is actually written, I don't know when or how I can check this off. Right. So it's like the way that I frame it, it's like, here's the big intended outcome like one of the things that I have as an attended outcome right now is I, I want to get better at documenting my processes inside of my business. And so I want to have a, a document for that. So that's the intended outcome is that there's a, a thing I can look at and train people on more effectively. But so that's the intended outcome. But the action item I can do is I can create a Google Doc that that outlines the first section of this this thing I want to document, right? And then the, the the checklist that I go through whenever I have an action item is, is this action item in my control is it focused on process, not outcome? Meaning like, like I can control the inputs, but I might not be able to control the output. And is it something I can check off? Like those are the ways that I, I like to run through in my head. So uh, love that. And I think you're right. It makes it way less intimidating to go from exactly what you said, like this crazy thing to like, okay, I can absolutely do that. So love I think that. what you said is really brilliant because if you wrote down on your to-do list, document processes, first of all, you, to your point, you'd never be finished because right. you're always going to have new processes. And second of all, when you looked at it, you'd be like, ugh. And I wanted to mention that also, if you use positive language in your to-do list, mm. you trick your brain into thinking like, that won't be so bad. Like if I write down, um, find out about new plans from cable company, I'm more likely to do that because to your point, it's in my control. And two, it doesn't sound emotionally fraught. If I write down, argue with cable company, or make cable company reimburse me. I I both emotionally like, oh, do I really feel like having that conflict right now? Because my to-do list keeps reminding me that it's gonna be conflict filled. And also, as you said, I can't necessarily control that outcome. They may not give me my money back. 100%, uh, I love that, it's a huge takeaway. I think it, a, way, a way they could easily do that is like adding so that to your, your to-do list. Like I'm gonna do this so that, and then remind yourself of why the hell you're doing it in the first place. So I love that. Dr. G, I know I took us right up to time here. So we'll we'll kind of wrap things up a little bit here. Um, I'm just gonna have a really quick conversation with our our friend listening, and then we'll jump in if there's any final things that you wanna say as we as we wrap up for today. But I just wanna say for you hanging out with us today, if this is your very first episode, you could be anywhere else, but you clicked on the episode with Dr. G and you are now empowered to be more resilient. And I'm super grateful and excited that you're here. And uh, if you're a returning friend and you've listened to episodes for a while now, you know how much I appreciate you. I say that every single a week. And the favor that I always have to ask is that if you listen to something today that made you smile or something that you're excited to implement, it could be something as simple as the very first thing we talked about is the story of Dr. G getting a text that figuring out how to get her, her son safe in, in, in Rome and find a place to stay overnight. Or it could have been some of the things we talked about for setting goals or managing discomfort. There's something in here that can absolutely change someone's life. And so if you choose to share this with someone, it would make my day, it would make Dr. G's day as well. Um, but whether you choose to do that, I appreciate you so much. And uh, Dr. G, any final things you want to say? Where can people share where people can go as a final thing? And then any final things you want to say as we wrap up today? If you're curious about a change that you're facing and strategies that would really be useful to you, I actually created a free tool. If you go to stressed 
to resilient.com. You'll be able to tell me about a change you're facing, what you feel like you're already doing really well, and I'll tell you a couple of strategies that might fill in the gaps. Awesome. Easy enough. Stressed to resilient.com. Go check that out. Dr. G, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you.